0: To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 25, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, February the 28th, 2022. So we are in the last leg before uh, Lent begins on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, by the way, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are uh, sort of wrapping up this season of epiphany uh, in these last couple of days prior to ash wednesday and so we're changing it up a little bit as we're sort of narrowing the focus a little bit Um, and we're going to be in deuteronomy 6 verses 10 to 15. the epistle is going to be hebrews 1 1 to 14 and the gospel is john 1 1 to 18 and that's certainly one of my favorite passages in in the entire bible Uh, john 1 1 to 18 is and it's it feels like it comes up a lot in the lectionary both in the daily and the sunday lectionaries the last sunday that i was in Pauly's island back in 2003 um it was happened to be the the passage that i had to deal with then and it was funny because the deacon got up and and read the lesson and i'm standing in the pulpit which was raised and i'm looking at him and thinking why in the world did you stop at verse 11 nobody stops that at verse 11 this is the prologue to the gospel and so i had to i had a really bad uh, problem because i had not a sore throat exactly i don't know if it was sinus drainage or whatever but i had no voice and so i mean i could barely squeak anything out and and i had to ask him to come back and read those last seven verses because i needed those seven verses so every time i have that show up in the lectionary i'm always reminded of that day which was a glorious and wonderful day for me because We just loved that congregation so much, and they loved us so much. And so it was a a great day, a, a hard day. But at the same time, you know, it was the right thing to do in the right time. So anyway, here we are in Deuteronomy six, ten to 15. In Deuteronomy, is, is the way that I always try to describe Deuteronomy and the way that I always speak about it is it's sort of Moses' valedictory address. It's similar to the last couple of chapters of Joshua, where both these leaders know that they're getting ready to, to go on. They're getting ready to—their life has, has ended, their leadership is coming to an end, and a new chapter for the nation is getting ready to begin. And so what, what Moses does here is, is he kind of recapitulates— uh, everything, and is is attempting to pull every all the threads together, and attempting to lay it out for the people that he has concerns over what's going to happen next. And and he basically what he's concerned about is they're going to forget what got them there, that they're going to think it had something to do with them when it was all to do with God. And so it's sort of his valedictory address. You know, if you wanted to give that address and say I'm leaving here um, today. These are the things, the thoughts that I would leave you with. That is the book of Deuteronomy. And so here, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." It, it, there's, there's echoes, that, well, it's not echoes because this is prior to that, but you can hear echoes of this idea all through Scripture. Psalm 80 is that you brought a vine out of Egypt and you planted it and you tended it in the land. When Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants where the, the landowner has come and, and he um, planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, put a wine press in it, and then let it out to tenants, and, and they some reason treated it as though it were their own Um, and then they that so they beat the messengers that came to collect the produce some of the produce and then they ended up killing the son believing that they would ultimately inherit the the vineyard itself because it would be nobody else to lay claim to it it's that that's what you're hearing here with with moses trying to get around that you know remember that everything in the land, all that you enjoy in the land, is because of God, not because of you. Uh, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he knows that the, that the generations to come, the ones who have not experienced the privations uh, and the difficulties in the wilderness and, and what happened in Egypt, are going to not remember this that they're not going to have a recollection of that time. And that's the whole point of doing things like the Passover and the Feast of Booths It's to remember the time in Egypt, to remember the time in the Exodus when they were in the wilderness, when they didn't have permanent houses. And it's, a, it's to remind them that, this, um, that everything that they enjoy in the land is a, is a product of one simple thing, God's loving kindness and his provision for his people, not because of them or any of their merits It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth and we live in a prosperous time. It doesn't feel like it right now. You know, it hasn't felt that way for the last couple of years for most of the people on earth. Now, the people with small businesses certainly didn't feel this is a prosperous time. People like Jeff Bezos did, people like um, all these other people who who have been like the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons of the world, the, the big, huge places have done really well these last couple of years. But, but, Local family-owned businesses have struggled, and so it doesn't feel like prosperity. But, but compared to the rest of the world, we are an incredibly prosperous and blessed people. If you can listen to this podcast on your computer or on your phone or wherever you is, you consume it, then, then you're blessed and you're prosperous compared to most of the rest of the world. And, and it's, it's important for us to remember that thing. And, and that's part of the reason why during Lent we, we do give things up. Because we we remember then how much we actually have and and by removing some things from our lives, we we get to feel the sting of that And, and in the sting of that, if giving up, then what we should feel also is great gratitude. For everything else, but we see that if we just remove a couple of things from our lives, if we give up a couple of things um, for Lent for uh, reasons of diabetes or weight loss or whatever it is, then then we see how reliant we have become on those things and how much pleasure and comfort we take in them rather than in, in the Lord. And so that's exactly what the purpose of those festivals are, and it's exactly what what. Um, Moses is trying to say here is that when you get fat and happy, the chances are good you'll go after other gods unless you remember that everything you have comes because of the goodness of your God. You wouldn't have any of this any other way, and so it's important for us always to remember that. In the gospel today, like I said, in this prologue, it, it begins in the beginning. And whenever anybody asks me, what would you give somebody to read if they were not a Christian who wanted to, to sort of begin exploring Christianity, I would say you always start with Genesis 1. But I understand that if you want to understand Christianity first, then where I would recommend that you go is to John 1 because it begins in the same place. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so we're we're immediately confronted with this pre-existent Christ. And we're also confronted with the idea that, that the word was there in the beginning when creation happened, and he was not just there free-floating, he was with God, and, and actually the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And it, there's this Sort of cosmic understanding of the Trinity coming together right there in that that he was God and with God at the same time and so there's this trying to come to grips with sort of who is Jesus and how does he fit and John does it in this beautiful way because the word is the wor- is the way in which God created things he spoke and all things came into being and then the the Torah itself is the Word of God and so Jesus is the Torah. In that way he is the the very Word of God so if you follow the Torah then what you would do is you would be following Jesus and so that's why that when people want to tell me that the law no longer has any effect it does because the word (laughs) Jesus is the Word he is the Word of God and so the law tells us how to live and we just finished that that book of Ruth uh, and, and in Ruth, what we learn is, is that, that if people follow the law, there's a blessedness that's beyond measure in that. If they follow the law and commit themselves to the law, then the Lord blesses them. And, and then they can extend their own uh, capacity for law-keeping beyond the strict boundaries of the law. Because they don't have to worry about all this other stuff because they're following the Lord. And so that's what we are called to do. We're called to follow him. And what we're called, what we know about that call is, is that so, so much is that we follow him, we'll come in for persecution. Because people, you know, if they kill Jesus, they're going to kill anybody who's, who's trying to be like him. They're going to persecute them at least. Let's drop back a step and say it that way. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, so everything owes its existence to the Word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. The primordial light, the light that is created first, that is the light of Christ, because it allows us to see clearly and truthfully in all things. It's unlike the light of the sun. It's the light that will, that will be in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 when it says that, that there's no need of uh, light in the city there because the, the, the light that's there is God. It's, it's light all the time. There's no darkness there. And the lamp through which that light shines is the Lamb. And so that's exactly the point that John's getting to here, and the darkness has never overcome that light. It's always been there, and it will always be there until the, the new creation. And that light is the, the light by which we see spiritually and understand the world in a supra-rational way. In other words, we have a supernatural access to wisdom, and that wisdom is the light of the world. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John the Evangelist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It had no, uh, the, the light had been so dimmed in most of the world, wherever there was not... Um, Yahweh worshippers, the light had become so dim that it didn't, didn't even, that the, those who he had created didn't even recognize him. And worse than that, he, he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. He was rejected by his people, the ones who had, who had said yes to the marriage covenant at Sinai. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And, and you can argue with me all you like, but, but until you receive him and believe in his name, you are not a child of God. You're, you're, a create, you're a creature created in the image of God, but you're not his child. You have not been adopted into his family. You're simply a creature created in his image who has the potential to become a child of God. But that potential to become a child of God is only realized in reception and belief in him and in his name. And his name means the Lord saves. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This most glorious line I think there is in the entire English, in any language, but it's the most glorious truth that's ever been. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The impossibility of such a statement as that, that God became flesh and dwelt among us and submitted himself to man, is one of the most remarkable Things that you'll ever hear in your life—it's—it's it, it's exceeded by the resurrection. But without the incarnation, there is no resurrection, and so it—it it, it is absolutely awe-inspiring and unbelievable. Except it really did happen. It's—it's it's something that—it's an imponderable how that could happen, how God could take on flesh, become like a child, and live among his creation. And we have seen his glory, John says, glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And that could actually be translated sort of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, sort of like pie a never-ending stream, you know, it never repeats. Well, that's exactly what John is saying here. This is the, the tense of the verb that he's using. The, the imperfect is, is to say that it just goes on and on and on in a never-ending stream of grace, and we have received that from him. You can hear the wonder in John's voice as he looks back and I'm sure remembers some of the ignorant things that he said, um, when, like when his brother, he and his brother come to Jesus and ask that they be sit, seated at his right and left hand when he comes into his glory and other things that they said. I'm sure John looked back on that and, and just cringed. But, but then what he remembered in the face of those cringe moments was, was the grace Jesus showed him in, in continuing with him and raising him up and giving him a role in the, the kingdom. It, it's, it's remarkable and it's amazing to John that he could have spent that time with God and that, that ultimately what he received was grace. For this, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. And and so he is reflecting on this time that he spent with Jesus and is absolutely blown away at at the recollection of that and, and just how it staggers the imagination. And it shouldn't just be true for John. It should be true for each and every one of us because we have him in the presence of the Holy Spirit as well. And what we receive from him is not condemnation, but it's grace. But it's only grace to the extent that we receive the conviction of sin, that, that we recognize who we are and that we've never transcended that and become anything more, but that his grace carries us day to day. And that we, if we want to be more like him, then, then we've got to be ready to be convicted and to, to repent and receive the grace that's there only for those who repent. In the um, Hebrews passage today, it begins, those first four verses begin in much the same way that John's do. It's just this marveling and wondering about Jesus. Long ago, it, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, that you can hear this, this amazement, radical amazement in, in the person of Jesus. And how it, that differentiates him from everything else in the world. And that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, actually, is to, to exalt Jesus in such a way that we could never possibly confuse anything else as something worthy of worship compared to him. And so that's what, he is, that, that's what this writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is, that, that's what he's, he's attempting to do is lead us into an exodus out of anything else we might worship and into the kingdom of God where the only thing worthy of worship is Jesus. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. And so this is the beginning of of the way that he's going to take us down this journey of uh, examining things that we might worship, or might be tempted to worship, and then seeing those things— In the light of Jesus. And so he's already said here, he's as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? There's no relationship like that anywhere between God and the angels. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions and you lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you will remain they will all wear up like wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end and to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand until i make my your enemies a footstool for your feet are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation so Jesus is greater than the angels, and he he uses many scriptural proofs to show the distinction and the difference between Jesus and the angels. And then ultimately comes down to the conclusion, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, which is you? So God uses them to serve for your sake. Jesus is separate and apart from all of those, and greater than all of those, and he uses all these scriptural proofs to show us that. He begins by telling us of the excellence of Jesus, and then then continues the argument by saying, okay, so you might be tempted to to worship angels, right? I mean, because that's true. We would be tempted to worship angels if we ever saw an angel. But what he's saying is is that that no matter how tempted you are to serve them, Jesus is so far above them, you, you almost can't imagine it. It's an immeasurable distance between the greatness of Jesus and the majesty of Jesus and these angels who are there to serve God, but they're also to serve you. And it's important that we see that distinction, and that we also get a better gl- idea, I think, of the supernatural world in which we live, because we tend to focus only on the things that we can see, but there's more than that. And that's that's comforting, but at the same time, we know that some of them have fallen, and so those are what we typically tend to refer to as demons, those who have, have, have turned away and started to worship something else. and Unfortunately, as human beings, we can become like that when we begin to worship something else. We can become like Gollum with the Precious. We, we can be so deceived that, we, that, that it, it requires more than just um, normal provocation to change us. We have to be brought to our knees— Once we've begun to worship those idols and begun to accept those things as gods, then then it takes a remarkable, powerful movement to change us, to expose the truth behind the lie. And Jesus coming into the world is ultimately the light that exposes all the lies and all the deceptions and the schemes of the devil. And so the more we keep our eyes fixed on him, the wiser we will be and the less inclined we will be to being deceived.